Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Let's go ahead and get it over with. (laughs) We are heading into Romans 8. And this is a very beloved chapter, one that uh, expresses so many amazing realities concerning what Christ has done, the reality of the Christian life. Just to give you some example of how uh, many have viewed this particular chapter One writer says that Romans 8 is the inner sanctuary within the cathedral of the Christian faith, the tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden, the highest peak in the range of mountains. Martin Luther called this chapter the masterpiece of the New Testament. Another writer says, If the Holy Scripture was a ring and the epistle to the Romans its precious stone, chapter 8 will be the sparkling point of the jewel. This particular chapter begins with no condemnation, and it ends with no separation. It is a wonderful chapter that expresses so many glorious truths for the people of God. And so we humbly enter into this this chapter, recognizing that there is so much to dig out of, of this of these words that are here, that it would, it would definitely, definitely uh, be beneficial to us not to just rely on what we are hearing each Lord's Day concerning what's contained in this chapter, but to do in-depth studies on this chapter to see what is there. This morning we are going over verses 1 to 4, which are elaborating on what Paul has said previously, of course. When you think about what we are getting ready to read, the words that we are getting ready to hear of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the best news. This is glorious news for the people of God. And think about how the Apostle Paul has led into this. He's been laboring the point from the early chapters on that Christ has removed the curse of sin through the offering of Himself He was set forth as the propitiation for our sins. It was He who died for us while we were in our helpless state. Through His act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Through His obedience, the many were made righteous. We have now been baptized into Christ. We are buried with Him in the likeness of His death. And just as He was raised from the dead, so now we are raised and walk in the newness of life. Our old self was crucified with Him. Though we earn death through our sin, the free gift of God in Christ alone was granted, resulting in eternal life. These are the truths that we have heard thus far in this amazing book. This is what Christ has done. This is what Christ has accomplished in saving sinners. But then Paul goes into, beginning in chapter 6 and especially in chapter 7, we, we hear these wonderful truths of what Christ has done. And how what Christ has accomplished. And yet in our experience, it just doesn't seem like this fits. How does all this work together? In chapter 6 and 7, especially in chapter 7, the apostle has been teaching us of, of the law, of the goodness of the law. It's holy, it's righteous. 
It has no salvific element to it, but it teaches us what sin is. And at the same time, it also arouses sin within the unregenerate. That when they see the law of God and they hear the words of, of the living God, they want to do the very opposite. It also arouses sin even within the regenerate people of God. The very things that we know that are wrong, and yet we are tempted to do, and sometimes we, we fall into those temptations as well. The conflict that Paul describes in chapter 7 of what Jason had went over last Lord's Day is true of every believer. This is our experience. This is what we understand. We know that the law is good. And we desire to honor Christ through obedience to that law. Obedience to his commands. Because we want to please him and yet we find ourselves doing the very things that we don't want to do that we would never have intentionally done. But then we find ourselves there in certain circumstances and situations, and then we give in, and we do the, the things, the acts that we hate. And Paul tells us that it is still sin that resides within us, the remnants of the corruption that was there. We still have to contend with that. It still abides in us. And this is what produces that continual struggle that Paul elaborates on in chapter 7. So because Paul knows this struggle himself, and as Jason had pointed out, he uses himself as the prime example when he could have used a number of other people. You see how they love the Lord and yet they struggle with their sin. Instead, Paul says, I love the Lord and I struggle with my sin. And this is how it works out in my life. I find that I do the things that I hate. My mind desires to honor Christ. My heart's desire is to honor Christ, and yet I find myself doing what is dishonoring to Christ. And so he knows this struggle. And because of everything that he has been saying, perhaps just to make certain that no one falls into despair and they think to themselves, well, then I have no hope if the apostle is enduring these things as well. What hope do we have? We may feel defeated. But then Paul asks that rhetorical question. Who will save me from this body of death? Speaking of the wretched man that he is. But then he gives those beautiful words. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he sums it up by saying this. This is the experience of the Christian life. So on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. This is the reality for all believers. We want to do what is right. We want to honor the Lord. That's, we know this to be right. Our heart's desire is to, to do that. And yet because of the remnants of corruption, which still abides in us, we do the things that we don't want to do, the things that are sinful. And so that, that then leads us then to where's our hope? Where's our peace? Where's, and it's all in Christ. Thanks be to God. And so Paul's going to continue that. Paul's going to give even greater news concerning the reality of the Christian life. Yes, this is what you experience, but I want you to know this truth. 
I want you to allow this truth to penetrate into your mind and into your heart so that you will be encouraged to know this is the reality of those that are in Christ. And that's what we're looking at. He's going to tell us that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Because of the operation of the spirit that is within us, we've been set free. What we could not do in our own sinful state, our natural state, and what we still can't do, he says, God did. And that righteous requirement that we seek after, he says, that's fulfilled in you. These are jewels of this chapter. And I pray that it will be encouraging to us. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Therefore there, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You for this text. Thank You for the truths that are contained here. That, Father, just stir our hearts even more to the greater adoration. Thank You so much that our salvation is dependent upon another not dependent upon ourselves because we could do nothing to earn it. But thank you that what we could not do, you did. And you did it through your son. Father, I pray that you would incline our hearts towards you, that you would lift up our countenance towards you, give us peace, remind us of the hope that we have in your son. May all that's said and done be glorifying in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In light of everything that the apostle has said concerning the struggle of believers, the struggle of sin, the continued presence of sin. How do we reconcile all that with this work that Christ has done and yet we, we're not perfected? And you know as well as I do that even though that we know these things to be true concerning what Christ has done and we, we say amen to this, we say, yes, Jesus died for sinners Jesus died for the ungodly. He died for us when we were in our helpless state. He has justified us in the sight of God, all of that. And yet in the midst of the time in which we are struggling with sin, 
when we find ourselves giving in to temptations or saying the wrong thing, then we, we beat ourselves up pretty severely, more so than anybody else could, because we think how awful that we are. How could we do this? Surely I cannot be in a right standing with God. Because look at what I did. These are, th- these are things that we think, and so we get, we get down on ourselves. And when we get down on ourselves, we get very, very angry at ourselves. How could you do this? If, if we perhaps had enough courage, we would pluck out our eye whenever it offended us. We get so down on ourselves. I was talking to a gentleman the other day up in Pennington Gap. I was up there doing an estimate, and he was telling me about this guy that he used to work with. And he said, and obviously this guy was pretty wasted on drugs. He was a roofer. And so at the time, they weren't using nail guns. They were just using nails, pulling them out of their pouch, using a hammer. And so he would keep his nails in his mouth. And so he would spit a nail out, drive it in. Spit a nail out and drive it in. Well, he was in bad shape that day. And he hit his finger. And he got aggravated and he said some things. And he went back to working and he hit his finger again. He got aggravated again. And he says, you do it again. If you get in my way, I'm going to break you off. And so he keeps working, and he hit it again, and he said, I told you. And he put his hand down, and he started taking his hammer to it. Now, while that is a very painful thing to think about, yet that is one of the very things that we tend to do to ourselves spiritually and mentally because of our sin. Think of how vile that that is that someone would do that. But yet at the same time, that's what we do in our own minds to ourselves. If we could, we would cause physical harm to ourselves because we get so down and upset and in despair. And we don't pay attention to the words of Scripture when it comes to our standing now before God because of another. Not because of you, but because of another. And this is why when he says these words, these words should should just fill our hearts with such joy. He says there is now, at the present time, in the midst of the time in which you are struggling, Not later, not something to look forward to later, though the full manifestation of the glory of the sons of God will be made known and all of that. But he says, now, at the present time, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm struggling. Yes, you're struggling. But at the present time in which you struggle, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You didn't hear what I said. You didn't hear what I did. You weren't there. 
to see how vile of an act that I did. No, I wasn't. But I know that right now, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Those words need to sink into our hearts. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, dear Christian. So if he doesn't condemn you, you should not be condemning yourself. You're going to find that you're going to experience things, sinful things. Your experience in the Christian life is going to be one of struggle. But it's not you. It's not dependent upon you. It's on him. That's why the words come after there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Those that are united with him. The vile things of the past are in the past. The things that you had done in the past, no matter how terrible that they were, they're in the past. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, forgetting what is behind, I press forward. I have to let it go. I have to get rid of it. I have to let it fall off because there is a new path that has been given to me. And that is on the paths of righteousness that Christ has set before us. You are now found in him. Remember when we were going through Romans chapter 5 and we were talking about how Paul was contrasting Adam and Christ. You have the first Adam and then you have the last Adam. All mankind is represented by the first Adam and all mankind, those that are unregenerate, when they stand before God, the one that they have to represent them is the one who caused sin to come into the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you have a new federal head who stands next to you at the time in which you stand before the Lord and you are declared not guilty on account of him. And because of him, there is no condemnation. Christ Jesus was the one who fulfilled it all and that's what he's going to elaborate on. He's going to go into... Uh, why it is that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And these are things that we know. These are things that we've heard before in the book of Romans specifically. But these are things that he's going to reiterate. And why does, it he, why does he need to reiterate? Because obviously we forget easily. And depending on where we're at in our life and where we're at in our struggle, we tend to forget. What was it that he said? Oh, yeah. He said it again. That's why I can remember. So here's what he goes into. That there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And he begins the next verse with the word for. And he's elaborating on that main statement in verse 1. He says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. There's no condemnation first off. Because of the operation of the Spirit in you. He says, this is, he calls it the law of the Spirit of life. He calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of life here. The Spirit is the one who gives life, not only physically, but spiritually. And we'll look at that in just a moment. 
William Hendrickson says this, The law of the Spirit of life is the forceful and effective operation of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and lives of God's children. When he's talking about the law here, the law of the Spirit of life, this is the operation, if you will, the influence. The operation of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. The Spirit of God in His very essence is life. He imparts life. And His operation in the lives of God's people in the initial beginnings of salvation is regarded as or referenced as a resurrection. It's likened to a resurrection. Whereas you were dead and in bondage to sin, condemned by the law because of the operation of the Spirit who gives life and who is life in His very essence, He has given life to you. And as He has given life to you, He has set you free. You know, there are a number of passages that you could look to to see how it is that the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is regarded as a being made alive or as a spiritual resurrection. Jesus spoke of two particular types of resurrection in John chapter 5, a spiritual and one at the end. But concerning the first resurrection, He says, An hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. We already have the new life that Paul spoke of in chapter 6 being described as a resurrection or likened to a resurrection. We're buried with him in baptism. We're raised with him in the newness of life. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. The apostle says very similar words in Colossians 2.13. He says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. The work of the Spirit in us is likened to a resurrection. It's being made alive. Because of the operation of the Spirit in you, when you were dead in your transgressions, under the dominion of sin, He has made you alive, and He has made you alive to have a new set of desires and a new mind to understand the things of God and to be willing to receive the things of God. Desirous to receive the things of God. You have a new nature now. And this is because of the operation of the Spirit of God in you. You've been born again. You've been born from above. Your life is now patterned after the one after whom you were born, the Spirit of God. This regeneration that we speak of is a spiritual resurrection. This is what Charles Hodge says. He says those very words. Regeneration is a spiritual resurrection, the beginning of a new life. Because of his work in you, because of His operation in you. The Spirit of life, His very essence is life. He imparts life. He has imparted that life to you. And as He has imparted that life to you, you have been freed from the dominion of sin and from the bondage of sin and from the condemnation of the law. 
You know, we talk about the law that the law can only condemn. And this is very true. For the unregenerate, the law can only condemn you. But for the regenerate, for those that are in Christ, the law cannot condemn you. When you think of this work of the Spirit of God causing you to be born again, being made alive in Him, not only does He make you alive, but He also imparts to you the benefits of what Christ has accomplished. These are granted to you. He brings you to life. He gives you a new heart with a new set of desires. And now desiring to call upon the, the Lord in faith, you are declared not guilty. The Spirit of God has united you to the Lord Jesus. He is sanctifying you in the truth of God. He's given you a new mind, and that new mind is said to be the mind of Christ. And you are forever preserved by Him, for the Scripture tells us that you are sealed until the day of redemption. You are now His. You are preserved. Because Christ has bought you, because Christ has redeemed you, the Spirit of God now applies these benefits to you. He brings you to life. He sanctifies you. He grants you the faith to believe and call upon Christ. He is the one who imparts to you a new nature and a new mind. And because of His operation in you, you are said to be free. This is something that he has said before, but it is to be a reminder to us that you are not under the, the control of sin any longer. Before you could only sin. You couldn't do anything to please God. And though you still struggle with sin now, it's no longer your master. For, for Christ has accomplished all that was necessary and because of the Spirit working in you, you have been freed from that bondage. You are no longer confined by its power. And we wonder, as we often do, because of whatever it is that's going on, you know, has, this, has this work of the Spirit of God been done in me? Has it been affected in me? Well, just ask yourself the same questions that Paul has been giving to us now throughout these past number of weeks. Do you desire to do what is right in, in the sight of God? Do you desire to honor Him? Where does those desires come from? Well, do you loathe your sin? I find myself sinning. I don't love it anymore. I hate it. So with your mind, you desire to do the things of God. And yet when you do sin, you loathe your sin and you hate your sin. Well, Paul has already told us that that's the experience of the believer. You wonder if the Spirit of God has been affecting this work in you. There's your answers. Paul even says that I with my mind serve the law of God, but with my flesh the law of sin. And this struggle you will have until the Lord calls you home.
you have been set free, dear friend. Set free from the law of sin and death, from the operation of sin which resulted in death, because there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So then he tells us what it is that God did that we couldn't do ourselves. He says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. I love the contrast there. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, as he is speaking to his Jewish audience, the very thing that you're seeking after, you can't do it. God did. God did this. And he did it through the Son. Sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He, this is the basis of our freedom. Whereas the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death, and then, then this is the basis for it. The law could not grant freedom, and it couldn't grant freedom not because there was something wrong with the law, but there was something wrong with us. Because we are found in sin now. We are in a fallen state, or we begin in a fallen state. And because we begin in a fallen state, automatically the, the law condemns. You know, if we were still in, our, uh, still in our state in which God had created Adam and Eve at the very beginning, this really wouldn't be a problem. But it is a problem. Because we are sinful by nature. Dead in our transgressions. And so the law has no salvific power to it. There's no means by which we can, or there's no way in which we can seek to keep the law of God in order to attain salvation. As we see the righteous standard of God, we can't do it because we are in a fallen state. And so what the law could not do, it couldn't grant righteousness because in our flesh, we are in rebellion. It couldn't be the basis of, the law can't be the basis of our freedom because it only condemns. He says God did. And the basis of our freedom is in Christ. God did it by sending his own son. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. This means in the, in the form of or in the resemblance of, the appearance of. Christ appeared as a normal man. He was truly man, truly God. And though he appeared as a normal man, he was not a sinful man. He was a perfect man. You know, the scriptures tells us in Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8, being made in the likeness of men is the language that Paul uses. Being found in appearance as a man. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. The flesh. 
Christ came as a man, a true man. Truly God, truly man. And we've talked about a number of times before, what does it mean that he is truly a man? It means that he's a man. He's just not a sinful man. He gets hungry. He gets tired. Even in his humanity, according to his human nature, you've got to be very careful, according to his human nature, he learned things. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. That's what the scripture says. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. That's what the scripture says. He was truly a man. Why, did, why is it that he had to come as a man? One theologian says he came as God because only God had the power to save. He came as man because man owed the debt. And so how is it that you can set others free? You must take, take upon yourself flesh and blood, as what the writer of Hebrews said that he did, and conquer it in this way, being a perfect representative of those that are lost. And that's what Christ did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, the perfect one, who gave himself as an offering for sin. The scriptures affirm over and over again that he was perfect, and that is absolutely vital to the gospel message, because if he wasn't perfect, he wasn't a perfect sacrifice. But what did the scriptures reiterate? No one could ever accuse him of anything, any wrongdoing. Why? Because he was sinless. He was perfect. The Apostle Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 5, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Apostle Peter, he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning of verse 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, and spotless, the blood of Christ. And there are, of course, other passages that you can look at. But the way in which God has set you free is by sending the Son and the willingness of the Son to come. Let's not you know, misunderstand that. It isn't that the Father commanded the Son, you need to go. No, the Son was saying, I lay down my life willingly. He chose to come. Out of His great love, He chose to come. We have to be careful sometimes using certain analogies and all of that as we, we think of what it is uh, or, or the pain perhaps of, of the father giving the son. And we've all heard the, the example of uh, a dad who had his son out and he was, he was the one who controlled the train tracks and his son was out on the train tracks and he got his foot caught. Well, if the dad doesn't change the tracks and allow the train to hit his son and kill his son, then everybody else is going to die. And so the father has to make a choice. And so he allows his son to die in order to save the many. And while that's a very touching story, a very heart-wrenching story, that is not the gospel message. The message of the gospel is the son says, I will go. I will take on human flesh. I will do all that is necessary, being perfectly conformed to the holy standard of God.
And so he is the perfect one. And he is the perfect one who, who alone is worthy to be an offering for sin. The scripture affirms that he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The perfect spotless lamb. Unblemished is what Peter had said. Isaiah says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He goes on to say, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. The very reason Christ came into the world was for this purpose. He came to be a sacrifice. He came in order to redeem his people. He came to die. This righteous one took upon himself the sentencing of death for sin on behalf of others, for those who would believe. One writer says, It was in Christ's flesh, his human nature, that God condemned and punished the sins of his people. He rendered himself as a guilt offering on behalf of others. The law could not set you free, but God's Son did. And that's why this whole thing here is, is hinged upon that first statement. No condemnation, no sentencing of condemnation, no punishment. For those that are in Christ Jesus, the Spirit has imparted to you what the Lord has accomplished Here's what he did. He came in the appearance of man. He was truly a man. He lived a life perfectly conformed to the law of God, which is the holy standard of God. And he dies a death as a guilt offering for sin. And as a result of that, he condemns sin in the flesh. For this reason, which is elaborating further, on this freedom, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, you could look at this in two different ways, still tied together, they're still connected together. Christ had performed his work so that the law will be fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. When you think about this, this requirement of the law, this righteous requirement, or this particular regulation in all of this, what is it that is being in view here? What requirement is it that is now fulfilled in us that before stood there to condemn us? Well, you can sum it up with a few passages of Scripture that are very familiar to you. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, the command is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And this you cannot do. In Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this we cannot do. He says in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? And in and of ourselves, this we can't do. 
And so this righteous requirement in these couple of passages, which sums up the entirety of the law, only stand to condemn you because you can't do it. Even if you were to be converted at a very young age, let's say you were converted very young, even before your teen years, even then you still can't do it because there was the period of time beforehand in which you were sinning. Do babies sin? Yeah. They will whine and cry in their little crib until you come and give some attention. Then they're fine. What do they do? They just deceived you. Something is wrong. And then you get there. Nothing is wrong. Do babies sin? Yeah. Of course they do. So even if you were to be converted at a young age, you still have to account for the sin beforehand. You can't do it. And so instead of coming up with ways in which we can try to, to have ourselves to be serving this, this righteous requirement of God and in no need of anything else, but by our good works we can, we can attain salvation, let us just understand very clearly you cannot do what is necessary to come into the favor of God. Period. You can't. You do not have the ability to do it. Man, because of his sinfulness, could not do it. So Christ did it. He alone is the holy and righteous one. He lived the life that conformed perfectly to God's law. And it's his righteousness that perfectly conformed to the law of God that is now imputed to you through faith so that this requirement of the law is fulfilled in you because of him. When you think about what, it, what righteousness is it that is imputed to you, it is the righteousness of Christ that perfectly kept the law of God. And that's why when we read passages like this, that the requirement of the law is now fulfilled in those who walk according to the Spirit, that what God demanded of me and the very thing that I couldn't do is now affected in me, in the sense that it has been imputed to me as if I had done it. Well, I haven't done it. I didn't do it. But Christ did. And now it's credited to you. Clothed with perfect righteousness. And there's another way in which this could be understood. Because of what he says in the latter part of verse 4. He says, so, there, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. No longer in the unregenerate state because the law can only condemn. But according to the spirit. We walk according to the spirit. And that, that speaks of our living it out. The righteous requirement being fulfilled in us. These, perhaps you could look at these moral precepts might be performed in us. This is another way in which this word fulfilled can be translated. Performed in us. The requirement that God demands is to love him and to love your neighbor as yourself. In and of yourself, you can't do that. But when the operation of the Spirit of God does this work in you by his operation. He does this work in you. 
and he gives you a new set of desires, you desire to do these very things. Whereas it was, it was held up, this is what is required of you. In my unregenerate state, I don't love him, and I love very few others. But now in your regenerate state, having been born again, having all these blessings of salvation now granted to you, you look at the law and you say, he requires of me to love the, to, to love the Lord and to love my neighbors, myself. And before I didn't want to do this, but I want to do it now. I want to love the Lord with all that I have in me, with my mind and my heart, my, my affections, my will. I want to do all for the glory of God. And I want to love other people. Yes, they, they, they may sin against me. They may hurt me. I may look out at the unregenerate and I may say, how ridiculous is some of the things that they're doing and some of the awful things that they're saying about Christ, and yet at the very same time I have pity. Why do I have pity? Why can't I look at them and say, your condemnation is coming, pal? Instead, I look at them and say, if it weren't for the grace of God, that would be me. Those words by John Wesley, seeing the man going in the gallows, but by the grace of God, there go I, right? We've heard that. Why do I have pity? Why do I have compassion? Why do you have pity and why do you have compassion? Because something has been done to you in which you now want to not only love the brothers and sisters in Christ because you recognize the unity that we all have together and the mutual love that we have together because of the Spirit of God in us and because having one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all of that, and yet that love extends out even to those that we would deem unworthy of that love. How is, this, how is this possible? Because the righteous requirement of the law is now being performed in you who walk according to the Spirit. You have been changed. This is the blessing of the new covenant. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 8, this is the Lord speaking. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In Ephesians chapter 2, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. The blessing of the new covenant that we are privileged to be part of in Christ Jesus is that the law is now written on our hearts and on our minds. And we desire to fulfill these things with genuineness of heart. Not out of, not out of duty but out of love and, and adoration for God. So you see, the one hand in which the righteous requirement of God is now fulfilled in you because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, but it's, in, it's, it's fulfilled in you or it's being performed in you also because of the Spirit of God and what He is doing in you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure, right? Right? What God is doing on the inside, you're manifesting that on the outside. Rob Ventura, he says this, He saved us so that we might be law-abiding Christians whose hearts are made new, gratefully upholding His commandments with gratitude for being freed from our judgments. 
Those that are walking according to the Spirit, those that have been born of the Spirit is the idea. <clears throat> those that have had this operation of the Spirit of God, this is who is in view. The very things, the very deeds of the law, the requirements of the law, you now want to do. That wasn't because you learned something and said, well, that sounds like that's pretty reasonable. I think I'll adopt that into my, my morality there. My moral compass is very similar to that, so no. You did this, and you desire this, and you reject various things because the law of God is written on your heart now. Why is it that you despise injustice? When things go on in the courts that are just, you, you scratch your head. How is this possible? Why do you hate injustice? Why do you get angry if a judge doesn't punish someone who is deserving, not rendering true justice? Why do you get angry at the whole abortion thing? It has nothing to do with you, right? You're not out there doing it. Why do you get angry? Because God's law says you shall not murder. God's law says you shall do justice. Why do you get angry with all the transgender stuff going on? Why do you get angry? It has nothing to do with you. They're individuals. They're doing what they want to do. Why do you care? I feel we care because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that our perfect creator does not make mistakes. Our perfect creator makes us who we are. And our identity, this is one of the, this is one of the traps, in my personal opinion, this is one of the traps of the whole LGBT movement. You can put the transgender thing in there as well. Is because people are trying to find their identity in something other than what they should. Meaning, your identity and your value as a human being is because you are an image bearer of God. You have value, you have dignity, because you are an image bearer of God. And when you begin to destroy the image of God, and we see that as an assault on the Creator who is perfect, you're denying the perfection of God when you give acceptance to this. Why is that? Because the law of God is written on your hearts. And on your minds. And you love the Lord so much. That when people are, are diminishing his glory. Diminishing his saving grace in Christ Jesus. You get, you get upset and you get angry. And even John Calvin said even a dog barks when his master is being attacked. That's what we do. What is it that, 
that causes us to do that. How do we know that? Because the law of God is written on your heart because the righteous requirement of God is being performed in you. And this is done by the Holy Spirit of God. There are more things that could be said of that, of course. But it comes down to this. We love the Lord so much that we understand that he is the only objective reference point for truth and morality. And so we get angry. Because we recognize that the unregenerate world out there have their feet planted firmly in midair when it comes to morality. And it's insanity. But in my personal opinion, it won't get too much further. Because when God judges a nation, however long it may last, a couple generations, whatever, they will not win. So when you look at all of this in the way that you think now, in your desire to honor Christ now, all of the, the change that has been in you, you can look and say, yeah, I can look and I can be assured of my salvation because my hope, my, my hope of everything is Christ Jesus, who is the perfect sacrifice who gave himself as a guilt offering for me and whose righteousness is now imputed to me. And I can see how the Spirit of God has operated in my life because even though I find myself committing things that I hate, yet with my mind I know that what is right according to what God has said, and that is my desire to do it. And I can see God working in me. And you can see God working in you. And all of this work of the Spirit setting you free. All of this is summed up in that very first verse. That there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The law that once condemned you can condemn you no more. It is now your guide to walk you through life. Whereas you were once dead and in bondage, now you are free because of the Spirit of God. You can't work for your salvation. You can't earn it. There's no way that you can. But God took care of that. And the very requirement that he has placed upon all mankind is now, is now fulfilled in you because of his son. Do you see the connections there? It's all in the son. Even the operation of the spirit. Because of what the son did. And the son taking his seat at the right hand of the father he sends the Spirit of God to now be His presence on earth and to apply the benefits of what He has accomplished on His bride. Those that are in Christ Jesus, those that are united to Christ Jesus, are no longer condemned. And that's amazing news. That is news to be so joyful about. What is it we've been hammering away for weeks and weeks and weeks. It's not dependent upon you. Your salvation. Your performance is not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon him. Don't look to yourself. 
but look to Christ, the one whom you are now united to. Because when you do that, and that's your trust, then this truth will penetrate your heart even more. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you, Father, for this amazing news. There's just not enough adjectives to describe this kind of news. Amazing, wonderful. It, we don't have the words. But we thank you so much that, that we are privileged to be recipients of this news. Recipients of what has been done in Christ Jesus. His benefits applied to us by the Spirit of God. Though we long to live a life that is sinless, we know that here we'll never be able to attain that. But one day we will. For one day we will be glorified in Him. And we look forward to that day. Father, as, as we all here have struggles, Father, give us comfort and encourage us by the Spirit who now resides within us to be reminded of these truths. Yes, we should hate the sin that we commit, loathe the sin, even to an extent to be upset that we have committed such sins, but not to the point of despair. Remind us, in Him, there is no condemnation. And that we find ourselves doing the very things that we hate. And that's the unfortunate experience of the Christian life. But it makes us yearn all the more for the day you call us home, Father. Encourage us today. Remind those that are struggling now of your love and your devotion to them. For you sent your Son for them. If there's any here that do not know you, Father, and have not experienced the joy of knowing that we have peace with you because of your Son, I pray that today you would touch their hearts, do this mighty work in their hearts by the Spirit of God, granting them faith and uniting them to the one and only Savior. Well, you can do all things. And so we pray that you would do your mighty work. We love you. We give you praise for all things in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. And all God's children said, amen.